Um, oh, and Sally. Good morning. So, yeah, this morning I've um, got quite a sort of... Oh, hi. <laughs> I've got quite a sort of a um, toxic uh, mix of ideas to, to discover or discuss um, that's been brewing. And uh, it's been brewing for a particular reason because um, I, I, I've been... Now that uh, the, the lockdown is starting to lift gently, I've seen a few... I've seen a few... Um, what a very strange thought. I just thought to myself, I just caught sight of myself in a camera there and I think I'm looking like an ageing Tintin this morning. Um, so, yes, uh, I, I had this kind of uh, um, uh, influx of clients back in again and uh, it's interesting for me to see, um, to, to... Oh, an unstable internet connection, apparently. Hopefully you're hearing me okay. I think I'm connected to the right connection. Um... Yeah, because of a, a, an influx of clients, I've had a, a lot of a, um, thinking going on around uh, parenting. And I guess that, you know, I don't know which stages we're at and a, people, a lot of people have gone through this and we might begin at the stage which I'm getting to, which is the generation, you know, my children starting to have children. So parenting, oddly enough, is coming back into focus for me quite a bit. Not my ability to change anything, but now my children's ability to change things. And obviously what we hope we will do is we're going to make a better world for everybody as we go along. And so, uh, you know, the idea is that um, uh, perhaps we can help parent as opposed to sort of be overbearing parents uh, when we get a chance to, um, uh, uh, you know, do it ourselves, as it were. The, the next to uh, help the next generation. It's come up a lot um, for me in the last uh, few weeks because um, I've been working with quite a few people who, um, who frankly, uh, I'm astonished are still standing. You know, it's interesting for me because when people come and have a, a, an appointment with me, and what tends to happen is that uh, we, we work our way through their entire lives. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, we get an opportunity to look at the various different factors that have gone on. And honestly, you know, when somebody tells you a snapshot of their entire life, um, what they tend to do is they tend to um, look at the, the moments that have been most um, difficult for them and, you know, also best moments as well. But very often, you know, the, the things that have scarred them. And then when you start to look at somebody's life in, in, uh, in retrospect over an hour and a half or two hours, you know, you think to yourself, my God, how has this person even survived? It's wonderful. You know, they managed to make it through. The slings and arrows of outrageous misfortune, you know, how have they ever managed this? And, um, and so I've, I've met a, a lot of incredibly brave people over the last few weeks uh, who have really, really inspired me. And I just think to myself, you know, wow, it, it, it's true. It's interesting to see how extraordinarily resilient people can actually be. And the, the terrible things that we've gone through and, and you know, and, and come out the other side from. And... Um, there are sort of various different comments that spring from that. And one of the comments that springs from that is that we hobble on very often, having sort of, you know, stored something away and not really kind of looked at it. And that, as we know from kind of psychology, is, is you know, it's the kind of thing that psychologists look at is, you know, what have you suppressed? Um, you know, what have you repressed? And um, uh, the, that old sort of feeling of um, things that are, are not looked at Will eventually find a way to come back into your life and so certainly it's always one of my recommendations my clients is that they look at what's been going on in their lives uh, um, and you know they assiduously pick over the parts that are difficult and and try and figure out you know some method of forgiveness and so 
Um, one of the key things that I often say is, is finding a, a gratitude practice and trying to find a compassion practice and trying to find a way to forgive those people uh, who are predominantly parents, unfortunately. Um, you know, find a way to give those parents, be they alive or dead, for, for the things that have gone on. Because if you don't let go of those things, they just echo through your life again and again. And so, yeah, it's important, I think, to, to do that. For me, it feels like a really um, important part of the journey. If you want to move ahead, you really have to think about what's dragging, you know, you balls and chains that are fitted around your legs, you know, that are holding you back from moving forward. So I think that's a really important thing. It's just the ability to analyse these things and to uh, try and find ways to break through them. So I'll give a, a shout out for my, um, one of my colleagues, Hazel Newton, who's amazing. So Hazel Newton, her dad, um, wrote an amazing book called um, How I Died and What I Did Next, <laughs> which was a fa fabulous book. And it comes, there's another um, author who's called David um, Irving, possibly, or he might be some, he might be that toxic military writer, so don't quote me on that. But there's a, um, a, a guy who wrote um, two or three books which were about uh, life between life and um, soul um, journeys and things like that. I wish I could remember his name. I'll, I'll, I'll find it out if anybody's interested. But um, his story was that, um, how can I tell his story? I'll tell you my story. I went to Virginia um, in 1919, I don't know, 20, I think it might have been, I went to Virginia to work with an amazing guy called Leonard Orr. And I'd been to, uh, I went to Virginia because I'd met Leonard Orr several times. First of all, from a, a, an interest perspective, I had uh, interviewed Leonard Orr for a project that I had in the past and um, uh, and had loved him. I thought he was a fantastic character. And then eventually, uh, one day, I was thinking about this subject, thinking to myself, what are the things that are in my background that are going to be a problem for me? And that um, because I see so many of my clients who have arrived at my doorstep with chronic problems, what is it that's the key factor? And so often the key factor turned out to be childhood for them and parenting you know, that was done to them, if you like. And, um, and so I, I, I thought to myself, if I'm going to improve myself as a achieving teacher and if I'm going to improve myself as a therapist, I have to look at the things that are uh, operating me in the background. And so um, I, Julian's come to join us, that's great. Um, Julian, you'll like this subject <laughs> or hate it. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, so anyway, I was in, in um, uh, uh, Virginia in, I can't remember what the place was called now. Anyway, in Virginia, in sort of the, de the depths of Virginia, having turned up in the uh, polar um, ice storm that we had, it was a, an extraordinary journey to get there. In itself, it was a, a, an extraordinary journey. Uh, and it became quite an extraordinary journey as well. And basically, uh, I worked at Lenador for about uh, two weeks over there. And what we were doing was a process called rebirthing. And I had thought to myself, well, the circumstances of my birth were tricky. So uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure you guys have heard me talk on this call before about being adopted. But um, I was adopted into a family. I was incredibly lucky with the family who I joined. 
and uh, they, you know, I had the best childhood and it was lovely. I was really um, a lucky, lucky person, uh, you know, as they say, bum in butter. But there was a sort of a two week period there um, before um, I was picked up by my parents, essentially, where I was just in a hospital ward without a mother in this very sort of empty space. And uh, and I will get back to my friend Hazel in a moment and uh, hypnotherapy. But I'd, I'd done a sort of regression session with Hazel. And um, uh, the interesting thing that had come about from that was that um, I'd felt that that period in the hospital very deeply and I'd had this sort of an emotional release around it. And I felt, oh, well, there we go. I've, I've sort of worked on that. But at some stage, I also thought that, you know, maybe doing the rebirthing course was something interesting. So I ended up in Virginia with this wonderful guy, Leonard Orr, doing a rebirthing course with him. And that in itself had a, a whole sort of set of ramifications. You know, I think any sort of work that you choose to do tends to have some sort of reason behind it, you know, and no matter how thin and threaded the logic is, you know, you find yourself in a place and you make the best of it and you, um, you know, benefit from it and find ways to move forward, I suppose. And so I, I really enjoyed the, the rebirthing and it added a string to my sort of therapist bow and, um, uh, and there were one or two things that came up for me, but it wasn't like the most classic, you know, da-da moment. But um, one of the, the things that happened during that was that the book that I'm talking about by this author about uh, um, life between life, as it's, as it's called, uh, dropped into my hands. And I started reading it and, and basically it's filled with scripts of people who uh, go onto the hypnotherapist's kind of, um, you know, table and uh, couch, I suppose, what the hypnotherapists have. And, and, uh, and they retell their stories under a deep hypnosis. They get taken to this space where um, very often what happens is, is people get regressed into a former life. And uh, that's, a, that's a thing if you haven't come across it before. Uh, but, uh, you know, you can actually experience a former life. And it's, you know, um, tells you sometimes you find echoes from a former life that come into this life. So, yeah. And, and, but the other thing that this therapist had done was that he then discovered that he could take people into a space between lives. What happened after you died, but before you were reborn? So there we go. So, you know, if you haven't um, uh, considered reincarnation, you know, that sort of brings that up as a subject as well. You know, I genuinely think there's a very good case for it. Uh, and I genuinely think that it's a, a universe of free will. So I think that if you choose to be reborn, you can be. If you don't, you don't have to. If you choose heaven, as a, uh, you know, or you choose hell, you know, I think you get anything you want, really. So that's a whole talk. You know, I'm sure I've blabbered on about that in other conversations. Anyway, yes. Yeah, so the book dropped into my lap, and I started reading it. Um, I, I had uh, my suitcase had got lost and so vaguely destroyed and all my sort of writing material, reading material had gone. So I was sort of looking for new things in Leonard's library and there were all sorts of extraordinary things. But this Life Between Life book turned up and I read it. And interestingly, I discovered that after I you know, read a bit about the theory that, you know, the, this guy can find this doorway to lead you into this space. I'll give you a, a very, very broad brushstroke of, of, you know, what thousands and thousands of people he regressed told him that it was like a sort of a being in a place so vast that it was incomprehensible, that there was this smear of kind of light, like the arc of a rainbow um, that seemed to fill the entire place. Uh, and so that's interesting, you know, you think, hmm, rainbows, <laughs> you know, so is that heaven? Um, and then uh, uh, the, the, the lovely um, uh, analogy that went with it was that most people reported they went back to being a thing like a, um, a, a tree or a vine. It's funny I say that. It's got this little thing. It's a, a tree that I was given by my wife. It's got lots of little sort of uh, leaves on it. It's like a sort of 
pods. And uh, this was exactly the kind of experience that uh, people talked about, was going back to pods that were like grapes hanging from a tree, and that all the little souls were each a grape each, as it were. And so you ended up sort of going back to the same pod every time you, you had a recycle, and, uh, and you were always reincarnating with all the same people in your pod. And then you'd sometimes interact with people from other pods who would be sort of bit players in your next life, you know, so, but you're never sort of strayed far from these family groups, which is quite a comforting idea that the people you're with, you've always been with and always will be with. And, uh, and uh, you know, or neighbours therein. So that was a nice sort of book to read. But one of the interesting things that happened there was that um, he had lots of scripts. And so I started to read the scripts, as you do. The idea of reading the script was to sort of see what the patient said uh, about their, you know, reincarnation story. Uh, um, but actually what happened was that I sort of took on quite a few of the scripts and then lo and behold, whilst doing a rebirthing session with a young guy on the last day, I was about to head off to the airport and, and Leonard said, you don't have to leave the airport for another two or three hours. It's just down the road. And I sort of said, OK. And then he said, so it's your turn to give Senso a rebirthing uh, session. It's really important that you do it. And I was the only one left. I was the last one to leave. And I was just thinking, oh, I'm out. I'm getting out. Get myself off to Washington Airport, have a hamburger instead of all this vegetarian food. <laughs> you know, whatever was going on in my head, make a break for the coast. <laughs> and, uh, and then he sort of said, no, you've got to do a rebirthing for this guy before you leave. And it turned out to be the most astonishing session I've ever had in my life. We did rebirthing for a while, but halfway through it, this guy suddenly started regressing into a life between life situation. And we went through a whole past life of his with his father. I mean, it was just a, a nuts thing to happen. But the odd thing about it was that I had learned an entire therapy that wasn't on the menu from Leonard uh, in the interim period and was able to take this guy through this whole sort of guided tour of his life between lives. And so, yeah, it was um, extraordinary. Long, long, long story short, um, that led me to uh, a book which I knew one of my friend's fathers had written, which is called How I Died and What I Did Next. And that turns to be out to be Hazel's dad. And so I was just going to say that, you know, in this whole sort of segment about parenting, I was going to say that at some stage, it's a really useful thing for you to look at the levers that manoeuvre your life. And so those guys who are working with my teachers, Lu and Ling, on their reborn course, that's what they're doing. You know, they're trying to expose the levers of your life. That's the sort of the things that make you do what you do. The things that make you are who you are, but also the things that make you react in certain ways. The patterns deep inside that bring up the emotions that kind of um, make you suddenly, um, you know, uh, react to things. And so for me, uh, looking at um, uh, parenting very much and my parenting and how things have worked, I, um, uh, I yeah, decided that what was required was a, a, re a rebirthing session or a, um, a regression session or whatever with Hazel. And so that was my sort of chosen path into having a dig into what was going on in my childhood and to see if I could you know, loosen the levers of things that, uh, that I felt were still controlling me in some way. So the whole sort of conversation this morning has come about because I've been thinking a lot about parenting and I've been thinking a lot about, uh, uh, um, you, some of you guys will have uh, experienced me talking about what I call Victorian parenting. And so I'm going to touch on to that a little bit. Victorian parenting is basically when you're brought up in a, in a, in a surroundings where you have thoroughly decent parents who don't ever tell them, tell you they love you. <laughs> you know, they're just, it's just nice people and they do their you know best. 
But one of the things that you know has struck me a bit about uh, uh, when I've been thinking about parenting is where it all went wrong. And so you know, uh, interesting enough, I was listening to a guy called um, Alan um, Alain de Botton is his name, perhaps. He's a sort of a psychologist and a philosopher and things like that. And uh, I've read a couple of his books. He's a really good writer. And he was talking about love. And he was saying that, you know, love is really quite a new thing. It's a, you know, not a thing that we used to do uh, in the past. In the sort of 1700s and 1800s, you know, people sort of got on with it. I, th I suppose, you know, maybe the idea is that people were finding it tough enough to get by anyway. They didn't have time for the luxury of love. And that somewhere in sort of the, you know, 18, the Victorians and things like that, love started to kind of make a make a show. In that, um, you know, the Victorians were very big on their sort of stories about uh, about um, romantic love. And so romantic love really sort of comes to the forefront, uh, although obviously there's always been romantic love. And there have been tales of romantic love, but it starts to come along, I suppose, with, you know, the... the um, uh, must be sort of the advent of so much printing, you know, easily available and things like that. And people having enough time and money to be able to sit back and, and entertain the idea and write about it and things like that. So you know, I haven't really sort of thought through the theory behind that. But it just seems that there was a lot more love around. And, uh, and, and, and with that comes the idea that um, uh, love seems to have some sort of transactional value. So we have unconditional love, which we know so much about, uh, uh, you know, when, we're, when we sort of start on our kind of spiritual journeys, you start to realise that love is something that you should be doing completely unconditionally. It's something that, you know, shouldn't be, if I do this, then you do that, you know, and, um, you know, I, I refer back, you know, in, I, I think about people I've, you know, worked with and I think about, you know, when they tell me that uh, their parents you know, I mean, I, I, my, my, my story about my dad, I mentioned it last week, I think, or a couple of weeks ago, that I'd spent 15 years working in this toxic environment, 18 years working in this toxic environment of the city. And then after my dad died, I said to my mum, you know, at least, you know, I, I, I work really hard and I'm uh, in the city. And I think that my, you know, I think that dad really kind of admired that. And my mum just looked at me and said he hated it. He hated every minute you worked in the city. Oh, no, you know, how could I have been so stupid? He sort of said, he never thought that was the job for you. And I thought he would have been impressed by it. And so, you know, spending all the time trying to impress our parents, you know, trying to, you know, to make them think, and then never really knowing what it is. And so, you know, ask that question if you're still in the situation. You know, if you're, if you're in any doubt, go looking for the answer to that question, because you don't need to impress anybody. What you need to do is to make yourself happy. So we have these kind of various strands running at the moment. I was talking about love and transactional love and doing things to impress your parents. That's one of the sort of the drivers that so many of us have. Um, wanting to get good results for our parents, you know, wanting to uh, pick the right partner for our parents, someone my mother would improve, approve of, you know, uh, trying to... Um, uh, you know, there's this terrible program I, I caught last night and I, I just happened to sort of flick it over and one of the guys was, it was a young guy and he'd obviously, he'd won the game that he was playing or whatever. And I, I just wanted to make, I just want to make my mum so happy and so proud of me. And it is that thing, you know, we all have that sort of inbuilt. And, and there's a kind of like transactional debt involved there, which is the idea that your parents have spent so much money on you, spent so much time on you, that you feel you have to pay that back in some way. 
And what really should happen there is as parents, we should give and not expect to receive in any way, shape or form. However, you know, so often there's this idea that if I give you this, you know, then you'll be a good boy and you'll you'll meet my standards. Okay, so standards, there's a whole story again, you know, so we start to, that was it, that I had set myself a goal that I believe that was my dad's, you know, gold standard, that what he wanted for me was to be, you know, earning lots of money at any cost that, um, you know, uh, oh, whatever, I don't know who, I can't even imagine what it was that I thought these days, in those days, that my dad wanted of me. But, uh, you know, I was still working on the basis I was making my dad proud. You know, my dad's sitting there thinking, oh, dear, I wish he wouldn't do that. But anyway, isn't that a strange story? Um, yeah, so uh, the, the, the idea that um, we, A, have a debt to our parents to repay. And, uh, and that is set up by our parents very often. Um, our parents want us to repay that debt. They genuinely feel that they have put a lot of work into it. And so they think you should do what they expect you to do and, uh, and not what you would want to do. So it's a very interesting um, <clears throat> question that this guy, Alain de, uh, I, I must get his name correct, Alain de Botton, I think it is, Alain de Botton. Um, he asked and he said, uh, what he'd had was a, a big audience in front of him. And uh, what he was saying was, um, turn to the person next to you and say to, you, say to them, if I dared to be a bit more selfish, I would dot, 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 dot. So that's a really powerful question. And it's one, you know, you should write down and ask yourself later on. If I dared to be more selfish, I would, what would you do? And that's really interesting because it takes all of the shackles of, you know, parenting and uh, all of the old pattern away. And it allows you to think about a whole new future. So right here, right now, if I dared to be more selfish, I'd pack my bags tomorrow and I'd spend a year in China working with uh, my teachers. You know, that's my suddenly my wife and my house and the rent and my children and, uh, you know, my mum. And it's all just going to explodes and gone, you know, well, you know, they're just. But of course, the truth of the matter is, you know, I, I'm not responsible for any one of those people. I can't be responsible for them. You know, I, we are in the same soup together. You know, we're all just vegetables floating around in this vegetable soup that, uh, you know, that, I, that my, my corner of the vegetable soup, you know, includes my family and my, my, my parents and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, uh, the truth of the matter is I can no sooner, you know, change your life or change uh, my mum's life than, uh, than, you know, turn um, this cup of tea into cheese. Um, it's just not possible. You know, it, I, I can, you know, help and I can influence and I can be there for people and I can offer my advice. But ultimately, everybody will do what they want to do. Everybody will do what they're capable of doing. You know, and, and, and that's it. And that's the, you know, sometimes people do astonishing things. Um, uh, uh, and it's really it's fascinating to see you know people sometimes do the most un un unexpected unexpected things. And I was talking to a client yesterday. It's no 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 uh, um, doesn't affect the story in any way. Uh, but she said you know it was shocking because I was living in this country and I was working very closely with this woman. And then one day she didn't come into work and she'd left that country and gone home to Britain and she didn't tell anybody. And you sort of think, wow, you know it's really good. People sometimes do just do things like that. You know, you just think, 
right, that's it. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm getting on a plane and I'm going. Goodbye. You know, and I've just gone. And that, you know, and, and uh, that sort of shocks everybody. But the other person had just made a life decision and decided they'd had enough and moved on. And that's the kind of thing that we don't do. And so uh, Alain de Botton's um, uh, assertion here is that, you know, we think of ourselves as being um, quite selfish uh, and, and uh, you know, doing things for ourselves all the time. But in reality, we're actually not selfish enough and we rarely do enough things for ourselves. So I think that's a really sort of interesting uh, idea. And, uh, you know, and it's freed by this sentence, if I dared to be more selfish, I would do. Because that dares to let you think, dares to let you believe, you know, that there may be some future outside of what you do. And the fact of the matter is that if I got on a plane tomorrow and I, I went to China, what would actually happen? You know, would anybody die? No. Well, unless I got on a plane crash, of course, you know, but I'm hoping that wouldn't happen. Uh, but, you know, would any of my family die? No, and people would be upset. People would be, uh, you know, hey, people get over it. Things happen in one's life. One moves on. And so the reality of it is that if I needed to do that, and, and at the moment I don't, and so it's not, it's not important. And, you know, I thought this question over about what would I do if I was being selfish? And actually, if I was being selfish, you know, uh, uh, there's not much that I would do because I tend to try and do as much for myself as I possibly can. I know the power of looking after myself. And I know how that ripples out into other people's lives. <clears throat> and so, you know, I, I would have to adjust this sentence to being, you know, if I decided to act in a really crazy fashion, <laughs> as opposed to dare to be selfish, because I dare to be selfish almost every other day. And my daring to be selfish has led me to stopping all other work except Qigong, which is what I really, really want to do. And it's dared me to be selfish as in making sure that I look after myself really well. You know, I... I well, up until before COVID, you know, I used to make sure that I'd go swimming twice a week, no matter what, you know, didn't let it get in the way of any but anything. I, I just blocked out part of my day and I just did it because I really like doing it. I feel very good for it. And no matter what was going on, I would just think to myself, don't care. I'm just going to make damn sure that I get my swimming time in because I really enjoy it. You know, other things, going cycling, whatever it is, things like that. So I have actually manufactured around my life around doing exactly what I want to do. And I've only managed to do that in about the last sort of 10 years or so, um, because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's been difficult for me to organise things. But I've forced and pushed everything that so that I, I get enough work uh, if, through various different channels so that I can do exactly what I want to do. Okay, so, so yeah, the going off to China thing would be something that would be the, uh, at the very end of the line. I don't feel the need to do that at the moment. And I have no doubt that when I do feel the need to do that, I'll do it. You know, so with my hand on my heart, I will find a way to do that. We'll see if it ever comes up. You'll all know about it. <laughs> One Wednesday morning, you'll click on here and there'll be a notice saying Jeremy's flown to China. And <laughs> that'll be it. You'll, and yeah, anyway. So um, if I dared to be selfish, what would you do? What would you change? And that's a very powerful idea. And so it's something that I think that is really worthwhile looking at. Um, okay, so leave that end there and see if it comes back. Um, looking at love, um, you know, dare to love, I suppose, is one of the really important things that we need to do. And an awful lot of us end up in a situation where we haven't experienced love uh, in um, a open, ungiving, uh, 
selfless way. So we have, often end up in this way where the first part is that our, our, Victor, sorry, our Victorian parenting um, has been um, decent people, but there wasn't any love on show. You knew that in the background um, that your parents loved you. you know, if, if you'd said, you know, do your parents love you? I said, yeah, I'm sure they do, you know, that kind of thing. Because nobody ever showed any hatred towards you. So therefore, you know, and if they hadn't shown indifference towards you, then the net result must be that they loved you. It was just that people didn't say that in those days. That's the first side of it. And then the, sex, the second side of it is that, you know, clearly you might have had parents who actively didn't like you. And uh, that does happen. You know, unfortunately, some parents are just too damn selfish. Uh, and that just adds a little question there to me about the phases of your life and can you be selfish all the time? So I think that there's a, a, a phase in one's life where one has to be completely unselfish. And you have to be able to give to your children in a way that just means I give and I don't accept. Uh, I don't need to receive back from you because you're the people I'm helping to sort of move up in age. Uh, and then, you know, <laughs> in the back of the head, we're thinking to ourselves, yeah, when I get to about 80, I'm really hoping that you'll be unselfish now and you'll look after me. And that's obviously how the circle of life works is that, you know, I'm in a situation where I'm doing looking after my mum to a certain degree and all of my family are. And we have to give unselfishly there again. And so we move through these yin and yang phases where we turn the uh, energy on ourselves and then we turn the energy out and then we turn it back and we turn it out. And so if you've heard me talk about that before, the four phases of life, it's sort of, you know, four score years, which is your four sets of 20 effectively. And it never really fits that very perfectly, but it's kind of. And in the first 20 years, you behave incredibly selfishly. That's just your default setting. Give it to me, give it to me. I want it, I want it, I want it. And as the next 20 years comes on, you do have children and, uh, uh, and you have to start thinking, all right, well, I'll give it to you completely unselfishly <clears throat> or selfishly if you haven't got over it yet. <laughs> you know, that's what the thing is. You're supposed to, you know, be on a journey and you're also supposed to be in an education system which teaches you to flip the switch, which gives you the understanding that it's time for you to give back. And so we get to the sort of stories like sort of Denmark and Sweden, where, you know, people are given a year off work to do parenting. We'll talk about that in a minute. But this idea that, you know, you're given the time to do parenting. And so you can afford to be completely selfish, because unselfish, because, you know, somebody's still kind of paying you 80 percent of your salary in the background to be a good dad, you know, and not just a good mum. You know, it has to be a good dad as well. Time off to be a good dad. And so um, and then. The, 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 uh, when you've got your children out of the way, out of the way, it sounds bad, but you know what I mean. When your children have flown the nest, then um, the, the next swing comes around for another 20 years. And uh, what happens there is that you have a chance to be totally selfish again. You have a chance to, but fortunately, you have a chance to be selfish with much better oversight of the problem. And so that selfishness turns into what I'm doing now, which is looking after yourself adequately putting input back in which is useful input to make you grow uh, um, and uh, so where have we got to selfish not selfish being selfish and then not selfish again which is in your last kind of phase where you're sort of you know 60 to 80 although as you all know I don't see that as being the last phase I see that as being the starting point for the next phase of, of 80 years um, well, I'm working on that obviously 
Um, but uh, the, the fourth phase comes in and the idea about that is that then you've become a grandparent and what you're doing is you're giving back unconditionally loving or you become a sage you know, and you're giving back unconditionally uh, uh, of your knowledge, that kind of idea. So we have these sort of ideas about giving and receiving. And the question is, you know, when it came round to your parents' chance to, to do their giving unconditionally, did they give unconditionally or did they demand that you were a good kid uh, and unless, you know, you, that you played by the rules, they wouldn't give you this? Or was it even worse than that? You know, they didn't want to be a parent at all. And so they were totally selfish and didn't give you any resources. So that leaves... Um, you know, this story about love and, and how in somewhere in the 1800s, 1900s, 2000s, you know, love became this transactional process where people didn't necessarily just give, you know, they just, uh, you know, they expected to receive. And there's a lot of kind of language of, you know, giving and receiving uh, um, uh, sort of the fairness kind of thing, which comes from our sort of religious background and things like that. And it's funny that when, you know, I mean, that's what so many children say, you know, it's not fair, Dad. God, if I'd heard that from my children once, you know, I must have heard it a thousand times. <clears throat> and it's a difficult lesson to say to your children, well, children, life is just not fair, you know. And they, it's, a, it's a hard lesson for anybody to learn because, um, you know, the fairness thing is still echoing through my life. It's still my father, you know, believed in total fairness that everything should always be fair. And, uh, you know, you tend to realise that after a while, life isn't fair. It doesn't deal equal hands to everybody. It, uh, you know, and you look at other people and, why, how well you get on and, you know, I'm doing so badly. The fact of the matter is that uh, people have aligned themselves with the Tao much better than you and things are just flowing through their lives and they're luxuriating in it. And you're paddling furiously against the tide in the opposite direction, still in the belief that that's what your dad wanted you to do. You know, you can see how it all starts to pile up. And so, uh, yeah, I'm just sort of looking at my life there, <laughs> my earlier life and thinking, yeah, that was it entirely. You know, I was swimming against the tide. Uh, especially, you know, when if I'd just asked, my dad would have said, no, the tide flows that way, son, you know, but hey. Um, yeah, so um, uh, uh, we have that idea that uh, um, we need to sort of fight and uh, that uh, life uh, deals us, you know, unfair blows and things like that. But actually, the truth of the matter is you make your own reality. You really, really can you know, change your reality at any given time. And so if you feel that life's flowing against you, you can definitely turn life around and make it flow for you. You just have to listen to what life's telling you. You just have to listen to, you know, the things that come up in your life and wonder why they've come up. You know, why did that door slam in my face when I fully expected it to be open? And then start to, you know, wonder what it is that you've done. Because as I've said earlier, the only person you can change is you. You can't change that interview. You can't change that person. You can't force anything to happen you just have to think to yourself well it's happened for a reason you know and why did i make it happen what did i do that led to those set of circumstances and most people just to, uh, put the blame somewhere else most people just say he you know must have had a bad day he's a bastard that's why he didn't want me to get the job that's why blah 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 you know not my fault and uh, you know i can look at uh, friends of mine who uh, i think you know their whole lives have been based on it's not my fault it's, and you'd think to yourself, wow, you know, at some stage, will you ever realise that it's all your fault? And uh, that's, you know, one of the comments that I make about people getting unwell. And uh, I always mention about um, 
uh, I won't mention about Noel Edmonds, but Noel Edmonds, you know, you remember that story about him in the papers saying, you know, all these people in the NHS, they're getting sick, it's their own fault, and everybody in the papers was up in arms. How dare he say that? But actually, the truth of it is that, yeah, you know, people do get sick because it's their own fault. And the point about that is that when we haven't sort of dug in, as I've suggested, deeply enough into our psychology and found out what is making us ill, then it's, you know, going to make us ill. And so it's not really our fault because those things have been implanted there by our parents, by our society, by our etc, etc. The thing is, our fault is that, you know, we haven't spent enough time looking for those things and weeding them out to make our garden flourish, as it were. So in a way, you know, these things are our fault because, in fact, I can't change you. You can't change me. So the only person I can change is me. And if I want to heal myself, I have to change me. So, you know, yeah, in, a, in an indirect way, it is your fault. Sorry, but that's the truth. Um, or the truth as I see it. And you have to look into it and see if my truth is right. You know, I may be completely wrong about that. And, you know, maybe 10 years time, people will be pointing and going, how stupid Jeremy was. Sure, let it happen. I'm fine with that. This is how it stands at the moment, people. And um, right, uh, I got onto that idea and I was thinking about parenting and I was thinking about uh, how Victorian parenting had been this sort of terrible thing from the past. And I think now that the pendulum swung so far in the opposite direction that, you know, we'll have a backlash. Uh, that, you know, the, 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 the kind of, you know, soft kind of do, do, do kind of parenting that's going on now will end up, you know, with a whole new set of chronic difficulties. Who knows what they will be? You know, and I shall be dealing with those perhaps in 20 or 30 years time. And what we have to find is middle of the road parenting, balanced parenting. And as with everything in Chinese medicine, it comes back into the balance. You know, it always be never too high, never too low, never too kind, never too cruel would be a sort of a, a way to put it. Ever too kind is an odd thing to think about children, but that's it, you know. It is that sort of school of knocks idea that we do develop by the things that happen to us. And so I was very lucky in my childhood. I was, um, I, my childhood, I could only describe it as being free range. Uh, and uh, I was just left to my own devices, but I, the safety net round me was, you know, always there. I always felt that if I stumbled, somebody would be there to say, you know, so it's okay. And as I always joke, you know, whenever I used to come to dad and sort of say, you know, dad, I've hurt myself. And he'd just say, look, if you're going to die, die quietly. <laughs> and it was always this little joke and it always made everybody laugh. And, you know, and you instantly got over your problem. And so, you know, it, you knew that he was really joking. And if you were in problem, you know, he would always help you. But it was also this kind of like, you know, I don't make a fuss too much, you know. And that was it. And so you didn't make too much of a fuss. And I learned to get through life, you know, not making too much of a fuss, only when it's important. Only when one of your limbs is kind of hanging off or whatever, you know. And so, yeah, it's a kind of a middle of the road sort of parenting scenario is what we're really looking for. And I think that now, you know, when you see children throwing tantrums in the supermarket and, and you know, mums or dads saying to them, you know, what is it you want? You know, a two-year-old child doesn't know what it wants, for heaven's sakes. <laughs> you know, what it wants is more sugar or, you know, just to be hugged or something like that. But, you know... That giving children choice before the age of seven is a pretty daft idea because, you know, they're not fully formed. They haven't any idea really what they want to do. You know, and the idea that we might be channeling our children into school age three or whatever, starting to make them learn is just insane. You know, I think you look at the Scandinavian countries where people start getting educated about the age of seven. You think, yeah, now that's much more sensible. What we really need to do is to set up an environment where our children can actually be you know, brought up in a lovely free range way and where their parents are not stressed beyond all belief. So we have this story coming through from the Industrial Revolution time where people wanted to escape on stories of love 
because they weren't getting it themselves. They'd love to read about love because nobody was giving them any damn love. And then we get the next sort of current running through, which comes through in sort of 1940s, 1950s, 1960s. OK, so I'm straying into very interesting ground here when I start to talk about feminism, about which I know almost nothing about the cause, you know, as it were. And actually tonight on BBC Two, I think there's a really interesting programme called Miss America. Looks fascinating about the fight for feminism. So um, yeah, <laughs> it's like I have my own channel with thousands of subscribers and I'm sort of, you know, yeah, have a look on the BBC, you know, and just to sort of give them a bit of a, a boost just in case they need it. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the, the whole sort of equality movement is incredibly important. You know, the, the story where my parents, where dad brought home the bacon and mum was expected to do the job of being the homemaker. You know, I think that those things now people understand that that can be much evenly shared because it really helps a guy to become a, a mother himself, you know, to understand because it helps opens men's hearts when you have to love for a child, you know, when you have to really look after and hold and, and love a child. And lots of um, parents can be see it as this dual role, uh, 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 no, as, as the distinct um, departments, as it were. And uh, men need to learn how to love. You know, they really do. We can, you know, spend all our lives in business and never, ever find ourselves actually, you know, properly understanding how love works. And so a child's a great uh, um, uh, way to do it. You know, pets, yeah, they're great. You know, they give you a sort of an unconditional love idea. But, you um, it's only a beginner's, you know, nursery um, having a pet. Uh, but, you know, a child is a much, much deeper and prof more profound way, uh, you know, to get into learning how to love as a man. So I think that it's important that we look at the sort of Scandinavian model again, where, you know, a wife can get a year off and then a husband can get another year off as well. And uh, you can choose to take them both at the same time. Or you can stagger them. So, you know, the, you know perhaps you'd let your wife do the, the sort of the difficult, you know, um, weaning kind of thing. And then the husband would let her go back to work. And, and so I think that it's really important, our equality thing, that we've actually freed women from the sort of the terrible bonds of having to just be a mother. Because everybody wants to have purpose in their life. You know, everybody wants to have something they can do and something they enjoy. And as an aside, I saw a lovely um, map. You won't be able to see my map because it's so scrawlingly written. I think I mentioned it to you last week, but it's like a Venn diagram. One circle and a second circle kind of intersects it and a third circle intersects it. So where all three circles overlap, there's a little hole in the middle, a little space in the middle. And it's, um, uh, it, it's, it came to me from my um, I Ching teacher. And basically, um, in one circle, you write, what do I like to do? And in the next circle, you write, what am I good at? And in the third circle, what makes me money? And, and then where all three of those interlap is the sweet spot. But that's it. You know, you have to, what do I like to do? Everybody likes to do things. Everybody likes to, you know, I, I um, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll use my wife as an example here because um, she probably will never listen to this, which is great news for me, <laughs> especially as I've just broadcast the fact I'm off to China, although she knows that. Um, but, um, you know, what does she like to do? And what does she do? I don't see those as fitting together. I think that, you know, she could change her life. And, and uh, for her, you know, she's a, a worker and she likes to work. Um, and uh, But I, I think that it would be lovely for her to be able to merge those circles better and find what she likes to do and merge it with what she's good at and, and you know, what makes her money. 
and uh, you know as years go by she I think she'll slide towards that model eventually but um, uh, you know I think that's really important that where we've got to is this idea that you know women are no longer stuck in the home thank god you know they're allowed to have their own careers but that derailed things in a way because somewhere in the 1950s things suddenly started getting more expensive housing prices suddenly sort of rocketed you know when you hear stories about people saying you know my mum and dad bought their first house for 500 pounds you think well you know and of course in those days 500 pounds was a fortune to them but it's still you know they were able to pay it off by the age of 30 or something you think god i don't know anybody who's done that these days it just seems impossible and so what happened was that with the kind of freedom women's lib movement everybody suddenly realized that women you know could pursue their own careers and have their own lives thank god you know now that, that that has happened but then some somewhere along the way everybody started to earn more money and somehow things started to get more expensive and i think that you know mad men is a great kind of series it's a real snapshot in time when you see the advertising business because you realize that you know a whole industry grew up fanning the flames of consumerism that uh, you know beforehand adverts tended to be you know a sort of little thing in a newspaper you you know you'd browse through it or not and you'd sort of say oh look they've got a, a sale on at the Escher market this week I'll go down there and I'll buy some you know I'll do my shopping there this week and that was about us you know I never we never used to get sort of tv that had a billion adverts on it and you know American television is astonishing it's you know they shows are getting shorter and shorter and the ad breaks more and more frequent and longer and longer and so I mentioned the, the Escher market. It's one of my sort of uh, stories. It used to be just down the road from where we lived. And I remember going there um, as a child. And, uh, you know, <laughs> you're going to think, you know, is he 80? <laughs> is he much older than I expected? But I remember that we could go into the Escher market. And um, when you asked for butter, the guy would open up a churn and he'd take out a wooden paddle and then he'd kind of pat together a pat of butter and then he'd wrap it up in, in um, greaseproof paper. And that's how you get your butter. You know, your butter wasn't coming on a refrigerated freighter all the way from New Zealand, butter that had been, you know, taken from a cow a year ago and eventually ends up, you know, after deep refrigeration on your doorstep, you know, much cheaper than your local farmer can produce it. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> but that was it, you know, things were local and, uh, and uh, you know, and advertising and, and packaging, God, you know, packaging was simple and uh, advertising wasn't this kind of extraordinary driver and products were made so they last. Oh my God, I'm sounding so old. <laughs> what happened here? But there is, you know, genuinely you'd buy a washing machine and it would last for 10, 20 years, not for, you know, three years and then chuck it out and buy another one built-in redundancy you know this kind of thing that all our products have these days so the 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 space race the the equality race the the um you know the, the increase in earnings uh, and all of these things have mushroomed out of control we know that consumerism is now you know a rampant beast that's gone wild and that uh, we're all sort of caught up in the process but unfortunately what happened in the processing was that parenting got lost and so what actually happened was that more often than not, um, uh, both parents have to work. And then the ability for them to actually look after the children has just disappeared. And then, you know, I've, I've heard it from clients on such a regular basis, you know, uh, when their parents say, uh, when they say, you know, um, my parents both worked and I was a latchkey kid. You know, it's an absolute, it's a sort of standard for 
our generation, we, I take you all uh, into into that, you know, for because latchkey kids, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s onwards, you know, that's a was a really commonplace thing. We just let yourself in, you know, took your tea out of the oven or whatever, you know, and, and fed yourself. And eventually your mum and dad came back from work increasingly later each year, you know, getting more and more, having to work longer and longer until, you know, who knows how it's possible for people to have children these days. I'm really hoping that my children and my children are, you know, one out of two or one out of three. One is not old enough to be sort of thinking about that structure yet. But one out of two is rebelling against that structure and is living in a different way and is looking, you know, for a lifestyle that will allow them to really be uh, encompassing parents as opposed to just be at the office parents, you know. And so um, uh, what's to be made of that? Um, I think people are changing and I, I really hope that that's the case, that people are going to start to see the value of bringing their children up. And one of the things that's important here is that the government has never seen the value of that. And the net result of that is that I am seeing more and more people with chronic illnesses that I can really point back to their childhood. And so the government hasn't seen that and doesn't understand that because if they did, they'd find that their chronic illness cases would come down and their population would be much more balanced. And I, and I think that probably we would find that, you know, boozy Britain you know, we'd find that that would change as well. We wouldn't have to have so many people, you know, smashing each other's over the head and getting drunk in the pub because people would actually value their lives more and wouldn't want to forget their lives so much and wouldn't feel so stressed by their work that they wouldn't have to be in the pub all the time, self-administering, uh, you know, anaesthetic. Uh, and so, um, you know, th there's a, a whole kind of um, political agenda here that could be changed you know, we really could change our, our, our way of being parenting. We could actually make parenting a proper job. A whole new industry could be born out of it, you know, and makes a whole new set of taxpayers and who to fund the whole thing. You know, it could, I'm sure I could make a policy that would work quite well, that would allow us to have, you know, we've got such a big social state, it actually would take weight off the social state. In 10 years, we would find that chronic illness probably 20 years, we'd find that chronic illness was coming down dramatically. Savings would be made at the back end. We wouldn't have so many people getting ill, uh, falling ill from all manner of chronic illnesses, just because they hadn't had time to look at their own lives. They hadn't had the foundation that was important. And essentially, with a, with a solid foundation, they would be turned out as much more solid individuals of society. And, uh, you know, and, uh, uh, you know, the bill would be much less at the far end. Sorry, <laughs> often one today, as, as so often is the case, I'm often one. Um, yeah, I don't know what the value of this conversation is. Perhaps you've had some value, perhaps it's shed some light on your own childhood, and perhaps it's shed some light on, on, on why you should look at uh, working with it. And, uh, and I think I was going to na name check Hazel. So Hazel Newton, um, she's a wonderful hypnotherapist, and uh, she's great at helping you dig into these things. Any loose ends I haven't tied off? Um, I think that, uh, you know, if you find that you suddenly have questions, you could always type them into the conversation bar. And I think that, you know, what I should probably do is just to get on to uh, um, doing some healing of that whole situation. Wouldn't that be a better idea? And so I think um, what comes today, what comes to mind today is, is La Chi, actually. Uh, and, you know, very we've been doing quite a bit of Mingjue meditation. <clears throat> and we've done other ones. And funny enough, we haven't got onto the Nun meditation for a long time. Uh, and um, it seems to have just disappeared into the background. The compassion meditation. 
uh, various other tools that we've been using. None of them seems appropriate as a latchie today. And what that means is that I should have my phone and I should have Dr. Pang in the background doing his Kai, kai Her for us. And so I'm just going to grab my phone. Hold on for a moment. <coughs> It was all going so well <clears throat> and then another idea popped up in my head <laughs> just as I was going through there it's amazing how these things happen um forgiving your parents um ho-ho-pono-pono and I'm sure you guys have come across ho-ho-pono-pono before I've got it written on my board it's a great little technique and it's um it comes from Hawaii from the sort of the Hawaii um I've gone and lost their names now and the kind of the masters of their sort of um spiritual called um, kahunas possibly maybe that's yeah <laughs> maybe that's a rude word i'm not sure anyway excuse me oh no i think i'm kahunis <laughs> okay yeah they may be called kahunas possibly and um uh, i hope and essentially the the hoponopono practice um was uh, um story I've, to I've told you before but the guy was a, a psychologist working in the worst hospital in hawaii uh, of the uh, of working with the the worst um, killers, offenders, um, you know, psychopaths and serial killers and things like that, and the ward became so terrible that um, the the warders feared even going into the the hospital ward to to treat these psychiatric patients, and uh, you know they basically couldn't get in there. And this young doctor arrived there and he thought, well, if I can't get into the ward, what can I do about it? So each night he would take one of the patients. Um, folders and he would read it through so that he felt that he sort of knew the patient and then he would do the hoponopono practice which he'd been taught by his father and his father's fathers and all the way down and it's a very simple meditation where you get into a very deep state and then you say i'm sorry please forgive me thank you i love you and so you know the first thing that people find very challenging about hoponopono is why would he sit there and think about this psychiatric patient and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me, you know, to this psychiatric patient, and then say, thank you, I love you to this psychiatric patient who was a killer who'd been on a spree, you know, murdering people or whatever. What possible good could that do? But taken in the understanding that um, you and I are intimately connected, that we've never been disconnected, that we're all swimming in this vegetable soup of humans, you know, that um, uh, uh, that um, everything I do affects you and everything that you do affects me. On that basis, I can't ask you to change yourself. The only thing I can ask is for me to change myself. And so the implication here is that for that murder, murderer to have done, to have murdered somebody, that I have had an effect on society, that something I have done has changed society that has led him to that place where that's possible. And so what I'm asking for is that my, you know, quintillionth, millionth, trillionth little part of what led him to that place, could he please forgive me for that? And uh, so it's about taking responsibility for everything. And so the first line I say to him in mind is I say, I'm sorry, you know, mean it from your heart, say it and think it from your heart. So you find yourself in a very still place and you say to your father, you say to your mother, I'm sorry, you know, 
deeply, deeply sorry. And you can repeat the I'm sorry part 20 times, 100 times, 1,000 times. Or you can cycle through the four of them repeatedly, whatever seems right to you, just to sit there and say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And eventually, if you're really sensitive and you're really deeply into the process, you'll feel something shift and change. You'll think to yourself, enough, that feels right. I think, I feel like I've finished that stage. And so who knows how long that'll take, you know, and who knows how many days that'll take. And perhaps you won't find that sensation occur, you know, uh, um, for the first few times of doing it. You might have to be you know, very, you might have to repeat the process of day after day, who knows. And then run on to the next line, please forgive me. And then work away with this person in mind and just say, please forgive me, please forgive me, please forgive me until you feel that you've come to the end of that process, that it's naturally reached its point, either for today, you know, like a, a layer is being unpeeled, or for a totality, that it's actually finally finished. And then you say thank you. And again, you thank the person from the bottom of your heart. You really feel that thank you. You may need to say thank you again a thousand times. And eventually you finish off by saying, I love you. Sometimes you really feel that. You really feel your heart opening. You really feel that something has shifted and changed when you say from the bottom of your heart, I love you, I love you, I love you. And so, yeah, you might think about that person and you might just say, please forgive me. That's right. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. I love you. Then stop for a moment and then say again, sorry, please forgive me. Thank you. I love you. Stop and see how that feels. Or you might take each stage one by one, just repeat each one a hundred times, a thousand times. But whatever way, there's no kind of you know hard and fast with that. But you can just lay to rest the ghosts of your parents, the ghosts of your childhood, lay to rest that. And then I think you know there's a a, a modern psychological um tool. I'm not, not, never quite sure where it came from, but it's seeing, you know, Jeremy as a seven-year-old child working with that seven-year-old child, Jeremy, you know, as Jeremy is a 14-year-old boy and doing the self-same thing, saying to that seven-year-old child, I'm sorry, or saying to that one-year-old child, I'm sorry, sorry, you know, perhaps there are things in your life that you need to forgive yourself for. It's not all your parents' fault. It's not all your school's fault, your country's fault, your religion's fault. You know, perhaps you do. Perhaps you need to, you know, sit down with the Catholic Church. Perhaps you need to sit down with the college you were at and, and embody that as a person or a teacher and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. Thank you. I love you. You know, so have a little dig through. Have a look and see where those um, balls and chains that are attached around your legs, see where they come from and work with them and let them go. So maybe one day you might just sit down and think to yourself, what are the moments in my life that have been really fundamentally bad? Things that I think back on, or things that I try not to think back on. And look for those triggers and forgive them. Perhaps you can change your current life instantly by making changes in your past life. Okay, so with that in mind, let's just do some la chi. We're just going to gently kind of like dissolve problems. So that's the purpose of Lachi. And, and Jackie, I don't know if you've done Lachi before, but essentially the idea is that Dr. Pang developed this form 
And he works on the basis that the universe is big enough to take all of your problems on. The universe is this infinite um, resource of energy. And that when you move your hands apart, you just imagine all of your problems, be they physical, mental, emotional, whatever they might be, dissolving. So if we're working with a tumour, we just see the whole tumour dissolving out into the universe, cell by cell, disappear, like Star Trek, you know, the old 1960s Star Trek, where people sort of disintegrate in the Transformer. It's let everything inside you kind of just disintegrate. Sorry, that was a bit dated boys reference there. Um, but uh, yeah, you get the general idea, dissolving into, uh, into nothing. And then when you draw your hands back together again, what you're doing is you're um, uh, bringing back a perfect new reality. So it's the most simple healing tool on the planet, one of the most effective ones, because it's the visualization of letting go, the visualization of really releasing at the deepest level the patterns that make you who you are, the illnesses that you currently have, the relationships that are not working, whatever it might be, letting them go and letting the universe deal with your problems. It no longer has to be just you on your own. There's an entire universe to give you that and, and call it God, if you will. You know, if that's what how, how your structure works, let God have all these problems. And then when we draw back energy, we draw back amazing, incredible healing chi into our bodies to uh, solve our problems and see everything as perfect. So I use Dr. Pang's recording. Dr. Pang, uh, he's uh, uh, the founder of Jeneng Qigong. He's the developer of this method. And uh, he did a lovely recording of it. And so we just get him saying Kai. Uh, Chinese word Kai is open. Kai. Uh, and I'll just say Kai and her along with it. And I, what's been going quite nicely is that we'll get to a stage of our Kai her where we just start to open out into the universe and then open a bit further out and open a bit further out and open a bit further out and open a bit further out until you are just dissolved into the whole thing. And then we might just pause there for a couple of minutes out in the universe floating out of space. <laughs> um, and then eventually we'll just use her to come back. So whilst the tone says Kai and her, you don't have to always open and always completely close. Sometimes you can use the tone just to say open, 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 open. And you can just say close, 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 or bring all the way back down again. So look out for that on the way. And uh, I'll just grab my recording and we shall begin. Um, there we have it. I'll just get the volume turned up a little bit. You'll hear Dr. Pang saying Kai and her. That's I'm saying her. So Kai is open, so we gently open the hands. Her, we close. So just pause for a second. We'll just set ourselves up. We get ourselves sitting comfortably, nice and relaxed. The shoulders, let the whole body come back into a comfortable sitting posture. And then dry, dry, dry the eyes, draw the mind back inside. So we're gathering chi back from the outside world, gathering our sort of uh, energy back from outside and drawing it back into the center of your head. So it's kind of this visualization of the third eye being a kind of lens through which you can draw this amazing energy. Bring it into the center of your head and just kind of close the shutters down, internalize this experience, 
just for a little while while we do our meditation. Gently relax. There's something nice to relax is often take a nice deep breath. Why not just draw a breath in? And when you breathe out, just let the whole body go. Take a nice breath in. When we breathe out, we just release. Handle breath deep into your lungs. And breathing out. Push your tummy forward as you take this nice deep breath. Breathe out. Feel the lungs gently relaxing. Feel the tummy gently. Body gently. One more time. Breathe out to rate. Just moving on to gentle, easy breathing. So we're going to start, Dr. Pang, in a moment. Do your Archie session with your hands front of you, but you could also not move your hands at all, just do it in your mind, whatever works best. You tend to set your hands up six to ten centimetres in front of your chest, in front of your belly, and when you open, eye just dissolves, that's the whole of the universe. Take on your problems. When you say, her, uh, draw the chi back inside your body, filter to every Cell of your body. So Kai is open, dissolve, back. Uh, draw Chi back in your body. into your cells. Body opens. Chi flows deep inside. Open, open, open. Penetrate deep into your cells.
cellular level. Uh, penetrate deep into the DNA. on the end of the DNA. The telomeres hold the DNA together. The longer the telomeres, the longer the life. deep into the cells of our body. Penetrate energy and good information into every cell.
open, open, open your body. Open your body at a cellular level. Open your body. Open your mind. Dissolve your old patterns. that make you you dissolve let go at the deepest level difficult relations times with your parents dissolve them dissolves all parental control dissolves all the mistakes Dissolves all the problems, let the problems go. Breaking down childhood problems. Childhood problems dissolving.
Feel the universe. Feel the whole universe. Open out into the universe. Just stay open. That just holds you in place. Open deeper and further. Just holds you in this open state. Open, open, open. Stay open. Truly universal being. Open and at one with the whole universe. Open and at one with the universe. Feel yourself open, dissolve into the universe. Stay open. Open, open, and stay open. Open, open. Feel the totality of this. Feel the enormity of You are one with the universe. You are one with God, with all there is, with all the power of the Feel the vastness. No difference outside. No difference inside. Total oneness. Let's just stay in that oneness state. Hold yourself in a universal state. Feel truly at one. Absolutely. At one, all
totally universal state. Work our way back. Just think on this. If you are totality of all there is, if you can really connect and become that, what's to stop you? Anything. It's 3D realm. If you really are God, heal yourself. Feel the universality. Feel the truth of that. You can change anything in your life because you really are the universe. Just got trapped in this funny 3D existence. So now use your powers of totality to cure yourself completely. Okay, so we're going to start using the uh, part of the exercise. Bring ourselves back into our bodies with perfect healing. Feeling perfect healing. Ah, draws the chi deep inside. Feeling the totality of the universe. Send chi back into your body. From God. Deep inside your body. From the universe. Healing the old patterns. Chi deep into every cell. <laughs> From true universality to deep inside you. of God and the universe going to every cell. Feel your body healing right now. From the heavens deep inside. Inside your body to refuel. 
rebuild. You can change anything in your body. shifts. Just throwing the healing switch. Feel the depth of this healing going to every cell of your body. Universal chi. Perfect working body chi. Universal chi. Good information in every cell of your body. Universal chi. New patterns take the place of the old. Universal chi. Everything forgiven and forgotten. So don't forget, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. level, rebuilding at the deepest level, just a few more. To the last two in silence, deep inside. But eventually your hands come to a stop. Just place your hands on your heart for a moment. Today we've been thinking about the power to open the heart and to truly love. Not love with conviction, 
Just love unconditionally. Give your love unconditionally today. Just love for the sake of loving. Just open your heart and Open your heart. Okay, so let's bring our hands down to lower dantian now. So we slide the hands down. Now connect deep inside the belly. Deep inside the belly is this potent energy that supports us, fuels us, that supports our daily healing. The hands cover over the belly. Connect deep inside. When you put your hands there, it draws your attention to that area. Gathering chi deep inside. Feel the love deep inside. Sorry. Okay. Just going to draw three circles round our lower dome. We tend to go anti-clockwise, which is moving to your left, up over the top of the belly button, and down to the right, going the other way. Second circle round in that direction. Third circle round in that direction just sort of brings our attention deep in the belly. Then we're going to have three circles round, head three circles in the opposite direction. Anti-clockwise, one, two, and three. Just hold the chi there, deep inside your belly, your mind. Stay with it. Feel your body complete. Feel the healing complete. Deepest level, you've penetrated ideas, laying untouched for years started to rifle through the old patterns, break them down. You started to change the physicality of your body, create this amazing healing. Your body, just moving now, it's a perfect working order. The old order going out, new order coming in. Change taking place. Because you have allowed it to. Change taking place deep inside you. Because you desire it. All body. Working well. All functions of your body. Turning to perfect working on. From head to foot, every cell in perfect working on. So you can release your hands from your belly to stand or sit for a moment and just feel that shield of energy around you. Just feel like a being of light inside your wonderful shield of energy, protected, 
every cell reinformed, every cell on its healing track. Then when you're ready, you can slowly open your eyes. Bring yourself back into your body. And then traditionally we say haula. Haula is a, a Chinese phrase uh, which means good already. Everything is already good. Um, Tony, uh, the, you've asked about the compassion meditation. We might just do that uh, next week actually because I felt there was a, a, a kind of a link to the compassion meditation. It comes from university in America, I think it's Berkeley. And uh, they sort of studied best compassion meditation. So perhaps that might be on the menu. We might just do it together. We haven't done it for a while. So perhaps next week we can look a bit more about compassion and see how we can be more compassionate to ourselves. So there's already a thought and a theme going along. If you have anything to add to it, then why not send me an email? Okay, so we're going to say, how lie. Everything is good already. Everything is already fixed. So I put the hands up in the air. Oh, actually, I've got to unmute you all uh, because you can all say, how lie along with me. Unmute. So we just say one, two, how la, and that gets us kind of like uh, invigorated for the day. One, two, how la. One, two, how la. One more. One, two, how la. Oh, lovely. Thank you very much, everyone. Come to class tomorrow morning, 9.30, same channel. Um, and uh, uh, and all these are up on my YouTube if you fancy reviewing any of them at all. Hope to see you soon. Bye, everyone. Bye, Have a great day. Bye. 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 Bye.